This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Lord, as we draw close to your to your word, we ask that you would in the in the grace and mercy of your spirit, please speak to our hearts and show us Christ, Lord, the worth, the worthiness, the glory of your grace in Christ, we pray for your sake. Amen. Well, good morning to you all and good morning to any of you who are out in the courtyard in the cold and, and those of you who are away perhaps and welcome to any who are visiting family for Thanksgiving I know that happens on weekends like this and some of you are gone for Thanksgiving with your families we just hope the Lord will minister his word to you I invite you to open to Acts chapter 18 book of Acts on page 927 the Bibles we provide Uh, we're entering Advent season and this is the first Sunday of Advent Advent, you know, is a season of expectant waiting and anticipation and preparation for the nativity, the incarnation, and also for the second coming. Um, But because um, uh, this year Christmas ends on a Saturday, and that very next day, the 26th on Sunday, we'll be here, and most people, and particularly uh, visitors, will still be in that Christmas mindset. We'll begin our our preparation for Advent next Lord's Day. So I'm back in Acts 18 for one, one more Sunday here. So Acts 18. Now, if, if, you were, if you've been following with us in the book of Acts and you were with us last Sunday, I know most of you were, uh, you saw there in verses 1 through 17 that Paul's ministry of 18 months plus in Corinth concluded with a decision by Gallio, the governor there, to not address the complaints that were brought to him against Paul. And really, this was the establishment of some legal precedent. I didn't make that point last week. You know. In other words, in, because of what Gallio said, essentially he was saying that Christianity is an allowable variation within the Jewish religion. In other words, remember, he said, look, this is an internal problem. This has to do with your words and your law. I'm not going to address it. So you... You deal with that. And that really was a shift in public policy, at least in Greece, up to that point. And so I think this is what deeply encouraged Paul, which is why verse 18 says Paul stayed many days longer. And for the first time, you know, he had some cover, so to speak. And so even after 18 plus months, he could stay longer. I'm sure that's what deeply encouraged him to do so. Now, what Luke does next, and you'll hear in a few minutes when I read, Uh, He now hurries us along rather swiftly, and he compresses into a few verses a considerable amount of traveling by Paul, all the way up to chapter 19, verse 1, where he has Paul return to Ephesus again. All this took many, many months. There was some 1,500 miles traveled again, and so it's very compressed. He doesn't say much about it, and the reason is I think he wants to focus next upon Ephesus. Uh, that's going to be the next major city and how the, how the gospel spread there and, and from there. And so verses 18 through 28 are really a backdrop 
to where he wants to go next, the ministry at Ephesus. Nevertheless, there, there are some rich things in here for us. So I'm going to read beginning at verse 18. Again, this is page 927 in the Pew Bibles for you. Acts 18, beginning at verse 18. And because he has so much compressed, I'm going to make a few comments as I read along this morning. So after this, that is after Gallio's decision, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now this was probably a, a, a Nazarite vow, which was a voluntary vow. Some think that it was an expression of his gratitude to God for having protected him in Corinth and, and done what he said he would do. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. The, the, the sequence there sounds, sounds different, but basically he did the same thing he did at every city. He went into the synagogue and taught and eventually he left Priscilla and Aquila there because he was going to move on. Verse 20, when they, that they would be the Jews, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Now, it's very interesting, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus, that is alone. That's interesting because Paul longed to enter Asia, remember, and the Holy Spirit prevented him from going into Asia. Here he is now, and he comes to a city where people respond like the Bereans. They want more. And somehow Paul knew it's just not the right time. We're not told how. He just says, I'll come back to you if God wills. But he does leave uh, Aquila and Priscilla there to minister to them. Now, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Now, that's, that's like technical language for, for Jerusalem. When you're at Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem, then you go down from Jerusalem. So most scholars think what he's saying is that from Caesarea, Paul went up to Jerusalem. There he probably concluded his vow. He burned his hair in, in an offering, and then he went down from there to Antioch. And Antioch was what? That was the home church that had sent him and so this is the conclusion of the second missionary journey, but Luke says nothing about it. He doesn't talk about what happened. He wants to move on. It says, after spending some time there, he departed. So here's the beginning of the third major missionary journey. He departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now here, he slows down. He slows down because he wants to introduce us to a man named Apollos, and he wants to make a point here. Now, a, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Well, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that would be where Corinth was, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country 
and came to Ephesus. That's where Luke wants to get for the next expansion and discussion. Well, you remember now, beloved, that the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, Luke is showing us how the gospel spread, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and outer parts of the Roman Empire. He's showing us how the ascended Christ, who is the Lord of the church, is causing the church to grow and the gospel to spread. And so that's always the main point. And if we are to look for an emphasis, even in this compressed account, as to what, it, what might Luke be showing us here as to how the gospel continued to, to, to spread. And it's a bit difficult, but I would offer you this. I would say that what he's showing us here, or at least what we can see here, is growth through faithful church-based discipleship. It's not all about the, uh, the Apostle Paul, per se. We see here that God uses faithful people who are in process themselves to strengthen others who are also in process. Uh, this is sort of like a, an acting out, of, a visual of what Paul would later write to the Ephesian church when he says in Ephesians 4, uh, 15, telling the church there we are to be speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that's what we see here. Uh, he, he moves Paul off the stage for a few moments and shows us this very thing, that growth comes through faithful, church-based discipleship and this is what results in the multiplication of teachers this is what results in the elevation the lifting up of this man apollos and then he turned turn has a, a a great ministry back in corinth um, this is another key beloved that i want you to see and appreciate about how god is building his church and is still doing it to this day and this should encourage you, encourage you greatly i know as we make our way through the book of acts sometimes you hear about paul and you say i'm no paul <laughs> And that's part of what you're thinking. I know that. I relate to that. I can't do that. That's not me. But what you'll see here, and what you see in this account, is relatively new Christians like Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, people who are in process themselves, helping others, and God builds this church through these uh, transgenerational, uh, church-based, faithful discipleship that doesn't all come down from the Apostle Paul. So that should encourage you. The Lord is still doing that today. Now, so how, how does this church-based discipleship cause the gospel to spread? Well, it does begin with the apostles' role in intentional modeling. I want you to look down uh, at verse 3 of 18. Remember what happened when Paul arrived at Corinth? He was taken in by Aquila and Priscilla. And what does it say there? He stayed with them. He stayed with them. He, had, he lived with Aquila and Priscilla for some time in Corinth, and no doubt when he was in their home, in the context of their hospitality, the apostle was teaching, the apostle was, was speaking with them, interacting, and now what does he do? He takes them with him. They open their lives to him, and now he opens his life to them, and he takes them with him uh, on this journey to, to Ephesus. And that's very intentional, beloved. Uh, this is part of Paul's pattern and part of the New Testament pattern 
of, of modeling, of, of mentoring uh, others. And he would do this with Timothy and Silas. He would speak to Timothy about how he had done this with him. Uh, in 2 Timothy, you don't need to turn there, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, towards the end of his life, Paul says to Timothy in verse, verse 10, he says, you, you, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct. You saw how I live my life, right? My aim in life. You were close enough with me to understand what my trajectory was, what I lived for, my faith, my patience. You saw my patience with those who contradict and, and those who oppose and so forth. Yes, you saw my patience. You've seen my love, my love, my concern my, for others, and you've also seen my steadfastness, how God helped me persevere and my persecutions and my sufferings. You see, this is life on life exposure, and Paul took Timothy with him just as he takes Aquila and Priscilla. And when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he told that very same team the thing to Timothy, that Timothy was to be a model to others. He says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct, holy behavior. Modeling is part of the process of church-based uh, discipleship in which God builds up his people and transforms them. What we saw uh, was Aquila and Priscilla opening their life to the Apostle Paul in Corinth and what they must have seen with Paul. Think about that. How would you like to have Paul live with you for a year and a half? Huh? Sound good? <laughs> Maybe he didn't like certain things they cooked. I don't know. But they saw Paul the man. They saw Paul the live-in tenant. They saw Paul the synagogue uh, teacher. They saw Paul the tent maker. They saw Paul the street uh, ap apologist. And now, and now they travel with Paul. And they, and they see Paul the traveling, the itinerant pastor, the itinerant apostle. They see him dealing with the struggles of life. This life-on-life -life exposure, life-on-life -life discipleship, beloved, is an intentional component of New Testament discipleship. It doesn't all come from books. <laughs> There's some things you just can't read about, or you can read all you want about them, but you'll never get it. <laughs> you'll never get it until you are experiencing it, until you're in the midst of it. Or you watch others as they deal with things that may be lying ahead for you. And so Paul, Paul in fact, didn't even shy away from offering himself as an example to be imitated. Uh, to the Philippians in chapter 3, 17, he said, join in imitating me. And in there he was talking about what? As, as he pressed on towards that upward call and forgot what lied behind him, he said, you join in imitating me as I do that. And to the Christians at, at, at Thessalonica, uh, Paul would say that when he came there, <clears throat> he says that he, he treated them in the way he did uh, that he says in verse 7 of chapter 3 how you ought to imitate us in the fact that they work to provide for themselves. And in verse 9 it says, it's not because we do not have the right, we talked about that last week, but to give, in our, give you in ourselves an example to imitate. He would, he would present himself as an example for the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says to the Corinthian believers there, I urge you, therefore, be imitators of me. So Paul wouldn't shy from saying, watch my life. He took people with him. 
and said, watch how I interact. Watch how I live. Parents, you are always modeling, constantly, day in, day out. (laughs) And they pick up on everything. (laughs) All of you, brothers and sisters, you are actually always modeling the faith before the world and modeling the faith before other brothers and sisters. Now, I understand it can be intimidating to even think of offering yourself as a model or saying something like Paul, imitate me. <laughs> How's that feel? How's that sound? <laughs> uh, but listen, I, I want to point something else about, about Paul. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. In other words, Paul understood that he, is, he was not the archetype. He is not the ultimate. Only Christ Jesus is that. Only Christ is our ultimate model. Uh, He is that mirror of God's holiness, the Father's holiness to us. And so when when we follow the models of our mentors, uh, people who are are teaching us, who are our mentors in the Christian life, we need to remember this and look through them, look past them to the ultimate, who is God the Lord Jesus Christ, because every one of us will have deficiencies. Every one of us will fall short. Christ is the ultimate example. Paul understood that. So when he said, be imitators of me, he was also the same man who said, I am the foremost of sinners. He was aware of his own struggles. Who is sufficient for this, he said, as he reflected upon himself and, and the ministry. And so you remember that. That when we follow after others and we start patterning our life after our mentors, um, we, are, we are following individuals who have flaws, you have flaws, and what we're also learning in this life upon life is how they deal with their flaws. How they, how they, how they, how they openly address their flaws, how they confess their flaws, how they look to Christ for their flaws, for strength and so forth. That's part of the mentoring, and that's part of the mentoring that you are to do as well. Ultimately, what we look at is the the long trajectory of the lives of our mentors, and that's what the author of Hebrews says when he says in Hebrews 13, 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, where it all ended for them, and imitate their faith. And that imitation includes what? Persevering in struggles, uh, admitting your struggles, dealing with your pains, dealing with your shortcomings. And so here we go. The, the, the church is growing. The church is being built up through intentional modeling. Secondly, through a continual strengthening. A going back to the well of the grace of God. Look at verse 23. When Paul went back to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, He was there strengthening all the disciples. This would be now the third time he's gone to this region. The third time he's visited these Christians. And it's the fourth time that Luke uses this verb. Strengthening. Strengthening. Uh, You may remember he used it the first time in chapter 14 in verse 22. And there it says, this is Paul at Lystra. And he returned there, and it says in verse 22, he returned there, uh, strengthening the souls of the disciples. 
How did he do it? Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He strengthened them by encouraging them to persevere. And you remember he gave them a theology of suffering very early on in their walk. And then he uses the verb again in chapter 15, 32. This time he's talking about Judas and Silas. Uh, these were prophets. This is not Paul. And it says that they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. That was verse 32 of chapter 50, 15. And then verse 41 of chapter 15. Now he's talking about Paul. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There's that verb again. Strengthening, strengthening, strengthening. And now here in chapter 18, he says he visited the churches in the region of Galatia and Phrygia. What was he doing? Strengthening. Strengthening the disciples. That verb, you remember, means to, to confirm someone or to bring someone to a firm resolution. And, and what is he getting at when he uses a verb like this? He's talking about the inner person. He's not talking so much about outward behavior. That flows from the inner person. In chapter 14, 22, it says that he was, they were strengthening the hearts because the heart is the core of the human being, biblically speaking. Everything flows from the heart, says Proverbs. The heart is where, you're, where you make decisions. The heart is where you wrestle with temptation and motivation. And the heart is where faith resides. And so we need our inner person as Christians strengthened. We need our faith strengthened because Scripture says faith can, faith can be weakened, as it were. Or it could be strengthened. You think back at what... Uh, what the Lord said to the Apostle Peter, remember that interaction with Peter. It's recorded in the Gospels, and it's recorded in Luke, the same author, in chapter 22. He says to Peter, Peter, Satan uh, has demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. But what did Jesus do? He says, but I have prayed for you, that I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then having turned, meaning having repented and turned, that you would strengthen your brothers. The implication is that you would strengthen their faith. And he uses that same verb there to strengthen. We need our hearts strengthened. We need our faith strengthened because the inner person is where we wrestle with our, our devotion to Christ, our confidence in Christ, our walk with Christ. And you know, for young believers, those newer to the faith, like some of these believers that Paul had preached the gospel to, um, they need to be strengthened because uh, they're prone to waver. That rush of joy of salvation can quickly be smothered by the troubles being a Christian brings. You know, broken family relationships, uh, struggles at work, and struggles with your careers, and so forth. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Think about the parable of the soils. And one of the soils had, had fruit that came up quickly. And then what happened? It got smothered. Smothered by life's troubles and tribulations. And so faith needs to be strengthened. The inner person needs to be strengthened. And this happens in the context of a church family. Of life-on-life -life discipleship. Of teaching, of speaking with one another and even the faith of older christians like some of you we're getting older aren't we some of us <laughs> some of us have been the lord some time and, and we we have our moments too don't we 
and crisis, 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 pain brings up questions in our heart. You know, as Ryan prayed earlier this morning, sometimes we question, did God forget about me? Where are you, you see? And so we need the inner person's strength, and that's part of how God grows the church. But now let me ask you, let me just sit on this for a minute. They strengthen the hearts of the believers. They strengthen their souls, their inner person, and how did they do it? Well, they did it through the Word of God. That's what they were doing. They were speaking the Word of God. But yes, I mean, were they just studying, uh, you know, uh, Israeli history? or What were they doing? They were preaching Christ to them, beloved. They were demonstrating the Word of God as it reveals the grace of God towards believers in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what they were focusing upon, beloved. What strengthens the hearts of Christians, what invigorates Christians, is seeing Christ and knowing Him and understanding the depth of His devotion and love towards you. And so that is the heart and soul uh, of motivation in the Christian life. It, it, it's, what, it's what it along, along with uh, commandments, when you hear, be ye holy for as I am holy, that, that, that creates in every Christian a desire to, I want to be like God, but you also know immediately what? That apart from His grace, you cannot. And so you are taken into an understanding of how the love of God towards you in Christ is such that he understands that, that he's there to enable you, he's there to transform you, that he loves you. And this, this engenders holy living. Why? Because love for Christ and love for sin do not mix very well. And so if you grow in your love for Christ because you understand your, the depth of his love for you, there's very little room left for the love for sin because these two things cancel each other out. You remember the saying of Thomas Chalmers? I know we've quoted here every few years. He, he spoke of what? The expulsive power of a new affection. When you have something new that you love greater, it expels the other love. It sets it aside. I've, I've illustrated it maybe too many times with my dog. But I'll go back to my dog one more time. The expulsive power of a new affection. Right? The other day, he grabs a towel. I want the towel. He wants the towel. And so he's tearing at that towel, and he's shaking his head. I, I immediately think of, of Thomas Chalmers. <laughs> I got to get him to love something else more than that towel. <laughs> and so I grab that favorite ball of his, doing, you know, that little toy or whatever it is, or another towel, and you just keep putting it in front of him until his jaw loosens up. And then that towel drops, you throw the ball, I grab the towel, you see. <laughs> that, you remember that. See, I use that again because it helps you remember it. That is a picture of what? The expulsive power of a new affection. And what these people, what Paul and, 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 and Apollos and Silas and those who were teaching and strengthening the hearts of the saints were doing is they were strengthening it with a deepening awareness of the grace of God towards them and the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews, whom some think was Apollo, says in verse, chapter 13, verse 9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened with grace. Can you say amen to that? That's it, you see. Uh, Paul, would, uh, he would, he, Paul would say this repeatedly 
in different ways. Let me just give you a few more, and I'll move on from this. In Romans chapter 16, as he brings that great epistle to an end, verse 25, listen to what he says. He says, now to him, and I think he's speaking here of the Father, to him who is able to strengthen you, how? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And no less a scholar than Doug Moo says, that's the means, he says. That's the means by which the Father strengthens the believer. He strengthens the believer by means of the preaching of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, you see. And so that's what Paul says there. I, and I can't, I can't pass up Ephesians chapter 3. All right, so uh, Ephesians chapter 3, you, you remember the great prayer of Paul for the saints people who already know Christ and whom Christ already dwells, and yet he prays for them. In verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant, that he the Father may grant you to be strengthened with power here through his Spirit, in the, by the Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ, Father, Spirit, Son, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. He's already in you. He resides in you. That may, he may be at home in you. That he may be the center of your hearts, at home in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. Strength to, to, for what? To further comprehend. To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here's a great Trinitarian work of strengthening the soul, strengthening the heart of Christians. And this is part of how the Lord builds this church. It's a ministry we need to have to each other. Beloved, I want to say this to you today. You can't look too much to Christ. You can't look too much to him. He is not only the mirror of holiness, the holiness of the eternal father to us. He is also the fount. He is the fount of grace, the fount of our own holiness. So we cannot look to him too much. And that's what they were doing. So weakened believers, is that you today? Or you're tired or you're troubled by the news we keep hearing. Listen, may your souls be strengthened by God the father through the power of the Holy Spirit in revealing and making known to you his love towards you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of our duty in ministry, and that's what's happening here in Acts, is to minister that to you, to make it clear to you that you may have and live in the joy of your salvation. Now, the third, <clears throat> the third element here of this church-based faithful discipleship I'm going to call biblical catechizing. Uh, that, that scares some of you, I know, but let's listen to this, okay? Biblical catechizing, what's he talking about? Um, th this is where he introduces Apollos. So look at verse 24. He introduces us to this man, and I think Apollos comes as a Christian. I'll say why in a minute. I think he's already been born again. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed, catechized in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John, you see. So let's talk about him. Here, here's this man. He shows up on the scene in Ephesus. 
he comes there. His name is Apollos. Just to say a little bit about him for a few moments. Okay? He, is, he is a Jew by heritage from Alexandria. Alexandria uh, was in Egypt. He, it was the second most important city in the Roman Empire at that time. It was, even though it was in Egypt, it was seeped in Greek culture because it was established by Alexander the Great. That's why it was called Alexandria. Uh, it was a center of, of high-level education and philo- philosophy. Many of you have heard of the great library, the massive library of uh, Alexandria. Um, uh, the Jewish philosopher who was very influential, Philo, was there and overlapped Paul. He was there around that same time, meaning he was there uh, alive when Paul was alive. There was a large Jewish community there, and Alexandria is where uh, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek New Testament, the Septuagint. So Apollos is from this sort of Harvard, if you would, right, town of education, And he comes to Ephesus, and he's described as being eloquent, competent, instructed, or catechized, and fervent in spirit. Let's just think about these. First of all, he's eloquent, logios. That can mean well-educated, but it can also mean exactly as as it's been translated, eloquent. In other words, and it can refer to both. When he spoke, it was clear that he was well-educated, put it that way, right? When he spoke, it was clear that he had a profound education. He had, we would say today, uh, uh, an academic background, perhaps we would say. Uh, He was competent. I don't like that translation. I I take the New American Standard here. Mighty. Competent to too many of us sounds like, ah, he got around. You know, he was okay. You know. No, he was mighty, says the New American Standard. And that's the idea. He was mighty in the scriptures. And what do you think that means? That means that he had a vast knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. He had recall. He could speak about it. He could show how the prophecies pointed to the Messiah's suffering and resurrection. Remember, everyone didn't carry around huge scrolls. <laughs> they didn't have Bibles. And yet this man had recall. He probably had a lot memorized. And so it was fascinating to hear him talk. He was, he was very competent, mighty, powerful in the scriptures, you see. Uh, it was essential to to know large swaths of scripture if you're going to be speaking like that. Thirdly, he was instructed. And there's our verb. He had been instructed, catecheo. He had been catechized. He had been formally taught uh, through like questions and discussion. And that's a perfect tense in the Greek uh, New Testament there, meaning this had been done uh, sometime before and the effects of it were still evident. I mean, he, he knew the way of the Lord. Now, what does it mean that he had been instructed or formally taught in the way of the Lord? I do not think it's referring simply to ethics, to, to lifestyle, because the discussion here again is on Messiah, on Christ, and, and how he fulfilled. In other words, he, he had been well taught. He had been well catechized by someone in how the Old Testament scriptures come to their fruition, come to their fulfillment in this man, Jesus of Nazareth, you see. And therefore, he was able to accurately speak there about Jesus and so forth. I think about your own catechism, parents of your own children. Uh, You think back at what Paul said to to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. As for you, verse 14, continue in what you have learned 
and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Um, this is what had someone had poured into this man, Apollos. We don't know whom, but this is what you parents are pouring into your children all the time as well, I hope. And then lastly, he was um, fervent in spirit. That's a wonderful New Testament word. It means to boil. <laughs> he was boiling in, the sp- in his spirit. He was fervent. He was zealous. The only other time it's used, it's used by Paul in Romans 12, 11, where he says to the church there, be fervent in spirit or be zealous in spirit. There's debate whether he's talking about the Holy Spirit because it, there is an article here, but I think the context better favors that, his, that he was a passionate individual, uh, not only well-instructed. And I think those are the best kind of teachers, aren't they, right? In other words, he wasn't boring. You know, you, know, you, you, could, you could know a whole lot, you know. And, and unfortunately, that's just it. It's a gift, right? It's, it's a gift, and so is the zeal that the Holy Spirit created when he spoke passionately that got people's attention. Uh, and evidently, he was gripped by that. Uh, he preached with passion. He believed what he taught. He believed what he preached, and that was evident. And he preached as someone who was understanding that eternity was at stake. In other words, he was gripped by the urgency of needing to know the Lord and understanding the Lord. Now, there's been a lot of people throughout church history that I think about like that. There's so many quotes, you know, they ring in my mind because being a preacher, I collect them, I think about them. Uh, Just a few for you this morning. I think about the strange relationship that uh, uh, the great American George Whitfield, or excuse me, the great preacher George Whitfield had in America uh, during the Great Awakenings, that strange relation between him and Benjamin Franklin who was fascinated by George Whitfield, though he didn't really believe in him. Uh, he even helped to publish some of his books. And we're told, I mean, Whitfield could speak to crowds of thousands outdoors, you know, in the open air. And, and that fr- Benjamin Franklin would frequent some of his preaching. And we don't know the exact source of this, but it's, it's said that someone asked Benjamin Franklin, why do you go to listen to him when you don't believe what he says? He says, but he believes it, you see, you see. And there was something to that, you see. There's, there's something to listening to someone who walks out of an ICU room and looks at you in the eyes and says, you better take this serious. I know you're playing with this, but this thing almost killed me. You see, that's the kind of thing here that, 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 that fascinated Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I think about the, another Puritan, Puritan Richard Baxter, who said he, he wanted to preach uh, like a dying man or as a dying man to dying men. Or you think about uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who described preaching as logic on fire. <laughs> In other words, you have to preach to the mind, you have to preach to the will, and you have to preach also to the affections. And that comes through what? not just through the content, but also through, through the individual. So um, I think what I want you to get from this is that when it came down to this effectiveness of the ministry of Apollos, 
It's great to know he came from, from, uh, uh, from higher education, right? But you know what? That's not what made him necessarily divinely effective, right? What, what, what really made him divinely effective was not the amount of degrees he had from Alexandria of maybe, I'm, I'm reading between the lines, right? But it was that he had been catechized in the ways of the Lord. Someone took time to instruct him correctly in the way of Jesus and who Jesus Christ is, and he had a passion for that. That's what matters the most. Parents, you know, in the end, especially... And some of us work so hard of it. Some of you, I say, you work so hard in the education of your children. I mean, that's great, but let me tell you, in the end, it won't, it's not whether they get straight A's in, in trigonometry, uh, whether they get straight A's uh, in, in physics or some other extraneous um, disciplines. You know what's going to matter most the rest of their life? Whether you taught them why, well in the way of the Lord. That's, that's what's going to matter the most because when those moments of darkness come and those moments of travail come and uh, the time when when your heart and your life is squashed uh, by what's happening to you or or around you you no one's going to run to give you a trigonometry book you know <laughs> and say you just need to recalculate it all it's just what you what you're going to what you're going to want to understand and know and what you want your children to understand and know are fundamental questions is there a god is there a god or is all of this useless aimless nothing and if there is a god does he favor me in any way is there any relationship with those fundamental questions will come back at some point and in fact, when you think about others in the book of Acts, it wasn't some deep background in formal education that made them effective. Go all the way back to Acts chapter 4, and you have the two fishermen, Peter and John, and they're taken before the Sanhedrin, and there they have to defend the fact that they're talking about Jesus. And it says there, if you remember in Acts chapter 4, that the, the, the Sanhedrin, uh, these rabbis were, were amazed. They were astonished at these men because they knew they were uneducated. That, what that meant, it didn't mean they knew they were dumb. It meant they knew they didn't have a formal training like they do as rabbis. And yet they were astonished at how well they spoke about the Messiah. And they realized what? These men had been with Jesus, you see. That's what made it, them divinely effective. And so in the end, I really think that's, that's what matters, beloved. Uh, you know, in... in, in in the seminary and in years past in grade school theology, and I know Ryan would attend to this, we would get students, new students who come in, they're still coming in, and some who have very little to no real, you know, strong academic preparation for seminary. And some of them struggle for a while in writing a cogent paper, you know. It's like tainted and red, you know. But they're there, why? Because someone taught them in the way of the Lord and they have a passion for Christ and a love for Christ. And, and what seminary does, it, it helps lift them up with that passion and fill in the gaps, which is the very last point. And that is that in the context of the local church in discipleship, there's also a need for what I'm going to call tactful correcting. <laughs> tactful correcting. Look what happened uh, to, um, 
Apollos with Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 25, being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Uh, And so, okay, he had a deficiency. Guess what? We all have deficiencies, right? Okay, so here's a man, I think Apollos came, and he, he knew and taught about Jesus accurately as far as he went. He just didn't go far enough. <laughs> as far as he knew, he was accurate. But there was, there was a gap there in his understanding. Somehow, we don't know, the gospel had reached Apollos. Maybe it had come down through a, a disciple of John the Baptist uh, to Alexandria. Or maybe at this point he had already traveled to Jerusalem there and heard a disciple of John and, 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 and was baptized into John's ba- baptism and then later heard more about Christ and he had come to faith but, and believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus as Messiah. But, but when it came to his understanding of baptism, All he knew at that point was the baptism of John. And John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism that was preparatory. Uh, It looked forward to the arrival of Messiah. It it pointed forward to a greater baptism as well, a baptism of repentance designed to prepare Israel for the the appearance and the public ministry of, of, of Messiah. And somehow... Apollos never heard or never learned, was never taught that Messiah came and he, he initiated new covenant believers baptism. And he had never heard uh, that they were to be baptized and somehow that this depicted uh, at least our position on baptism, that water immersion uh, depicts our union with Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. Or perhaps he had never understood that what the Baptist said, that he will baptize you with fire and the Spirit, that that had come to fruition on the day of Pentecost, and that, and that Jesus was baptizing people with the Holy Spirit, or into, excuse me, the Holy Spirit. Somehow, his understanding of the practice and the place and role of baptism in relation to the Christian gospel, that was deficient. Though I think he was a believer and had experienced uh, everything up to this point. And why do I say that? Well, I'm reading between the lines, but Asilla and Priscilla do not encourage him to be baptized. <laughs> and secondly, they, nor do they encourage him to receive the Holy Spirit, and yet that's what comes up in the very next, next chapter. I think evidently he was a genuine Christian. Uh, and this is the truth. Listen to this. This applies to you and me. You can be a Christian and have gaps in your understanding. <laughs> I think you all know that, huh? <laughs> right. Uh, believe me. Believe you me. I know that. <laughs> Not about you. I know that about me. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. You could be a genuine Christian and have gaps in your understanding of how exactly you came to be a Christian. (laughs) You may only have a certain perspective of it and not understand that you were for love before the foundation of the world and that Christ God the Father predestined you as we read this morning in Christ unto adoption. You may not ever be able to say that and still be a genuine Christian. I know that was true about me. You can be a Christian and have gaps in your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. You can have gaps in what it means to live as a Christian. All of that's true, you see. You could genuinely be in Christ and have gaps and and deficiencies, beloved. And that's exactly, evidently, what was happening to Apollos. But the focus here then is this. 
the tactful way that Aquila and Priscilla ministered to this person. Again, people in process themselves ministering to people who are in process as well. Paul's out of the picture at this point. Look at verse 26. He began speaking boldly in the synagogue. Praise the Lord for him. He goes in there, and as far as he knows, he's speaking accurately about about Jesus. He's in the synagogue in Ephesus. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him. That is, the idea is they took him aside or apart and explained to him, explained to him the way of God, he says here now, more accurately. Uh, The idea here, I think, the picture we're to get from this is that Priscilla and Aquila, they hear this man and they recognize that he's gifted, they recognize his zeal, they recognize he knows Jesus, but they also hear and they recognize that he's deficient in one area, that he, he lacks understanding, that his teaching is incomplete, and so they take him aside. And we can imagine that that would be in their home, perhaps. That they, they've, we've seen this over and over. They, they hosted people in their home in Rome and in, and in Corinth. And, and here you can imagine they, they take him aside. And the important thing is this. They don't correct him in public. <laughs> right? They don't jump on him in the synagogue. He wasn't preaching heresy. This was not a false gospel. It was an incomplete understanding uh, of the blessings and the realizations of, of the new covenant. And so they, in a meek way, take him aside privately and they teach him the way of God more accurately. They don't want to humiliate him. They don't want to quench his zeal. They don't want to throw water on his fire, right? And that's what the church also needs to be like as as we continue to make disciples who make disciples. Uh, People in process who, by recognizing that they are in process themselves, Therefore, with great humility and gentleness, walk up to others who are at a different point of their process and kindly take them aside and teach them the way of Jesus more completely. You see, that's a lot of what happens at this church. You think back and many of you, many of you, that's what, you came from other backgrounds. In some way, you, had, you needed to learn more about the way of the Lord. But that has to be done with meekness. That has to be done with an awareness that every last one of us uh, have deficiencies. And if we only saw them, then we'd change them, right? That should be what we would want to do, but we're not always aware of it. This is a qualification to be a pastor. You You can't smash people. You can't squash people because they lack some knowledge or some, they have a misunderstanding of something that, that's biblical. You've got to remember the pit from which Christ loved you and pulled you out of yourself. You've got to remember how he, how he taught you, how he illumined you, and how he, you, you came to what you understand now, block upon block, stone upon stone. It didn't, didn't all just pour into your head. And therefore, you need to treat people with great patience. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul talks about qualifications for an elder, uh, he says there he has to be able to teach, but in his teaching he has to be gentle, not quarrelsome. Gentle in, in the meek in the way he corrects, and he would later say to Timothy in Second Timothy two twenty four, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, everyone, <laughs> able to teach, patiently enduring evil. 
patiently enduring evil. Meaning, you know, at, at times you, it's like you're, you're wrestling with some people's struggles are so real that in their own pain, they lash out at you, the one trying to help them. <laughs> and they get upset with you. Be patient with what's going on, he says. Um, let me go on. Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, in this case, Aquila and Priscilla and, and Apollos, they weren't opponents, but still that, that measure of humility and gentleness in correction is what's needed. Uh, we, we can't undermine each other's zeal. You know? that, that takes some tact, doesn't it? Especially when someone is really excited about something that's not quite right. <laughs> and then you got to say, I love it. I love your zeal, butter. But <laughs> yeah, and you, you learn how to do that with each other. It's utterly essential for, 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 for Christian life together, right? It, it's just part of it. And, and some of you may need to, to understand this better and be more tactful in how you, how you speak to other brothers and sisters. You see, if the first words out of your mouth are condemnation, accusation, you've already jumped to the motives for why they're saying what they're saying. You don't know. Just be patient. And, and so what happened? What was this, this correction was fruitful because not only were they humble in how they did it, but he was humble to receive it. Tremendous, right? Uh, he accepts their, their, their instruction and then he, verse 27, he wished to cross to Achaia. In other words, he wanted to go to Corinth where they came from. And why? Well, you can only imagine they told him, we, we planted a church there, but we only got to some 20 months or so, and we had to go, and Paul decided to leave. Why don't you go? Why don't you go back, and you build them up now? So he wanted to go to Achaia, and the brothers, that is, the, by that point, they were, there was multiple believers in Ephesus. They encouraged him. They said, go for it. And they wrote to the disciples to welcome him, a common letter of recommendation. And when he arrived, what happened? He arrived at Corinth. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Luke shows us he understands that the reason there were believers there was because the grace of God had reached into these people's lives, but even they needed to be helped more. The, they had the Apostle Paul for 20 months or so, and yet they needed Apollos. Doesn't the Lord love the church? I mean, he gave them Paul for 20 months or so. Then he sends them Apollos to, to go and encourage them and keep building them up. And, uh, and the church was willing and ready to let him go. The church was willing to share him with others. I praise God for that flexibility among you. We wouldn't have the relationship we have with sister churches and mission partners if you didn't let me and other elders go and travel and minister. And, and so they were glad to send him and and, and support him in this journey, and he greatly helped them. How did he greatly help them? The last verse tells us why, because it begins with the word for. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Remember, these were the Jews that finally got rid of Paul. He had to go next door to teach. These were the Jews that took Paul before Gallio, and then Paul was given uh, legal coverage, let's say, and now they could have squashed those new believers, but God sends Apollos who comes and he builds them up. How? By publicly, the word means to overwhelm. He overwhelmed them. I think we'd say he destroyed them. 
<laughs> in, in, in his what? In his ability to show publicly that the Messiah was to suffer and rise from the dead, and Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah, you see. And so that greatly helped them, uh, even if it wasn't necessarily directed all to them, is understanding the validity and the truthfulness of the gospel message. Uh, just tremendous. You know, Paul would later say that when he went to Corinth, he said, I planted. And what did Apollos do? He watered. But God caused the growth. You hear the camaraderie in there. You hear the lack of territorialism. Do you hear the patience and, and that sort of teamwork in ministry? Right? Well, that's what we want to keep fostering. Nothing more beautiful than having a congregation that has multiple teachers and there isn't this sense of rivalry and starts other churches and churches where they can share and people, they, they lovingly say yes and they support, you go and let's, we need you over here, we need you over there. May God build his church, beloved, through faithful uh, church-based discipleship that includes what? It includes all of this, that includes this Strengthening of the heart, purposeful, intentional modeling, catechizing, gently, lovingly correcting each other in the context of the gospel. Building each other up in our knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some good questions at the bottom of the, uh, of the outline this week for you to reflect on there, and families in particular, because it's talking about catechizing. Maybe you reflect on some of that this morning. Let's pray as we finish our service this morning.